0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my heritage colleague, Hans von Spakovsky. Thanks for joining me, Hans.
1: Well, Elizabeth, thanks for helping me, uh, letting me help you guest, ho- guest co-host.
0: So let's jump right into this week's orders list. The court granted cert in five cases, which will be argued next term. Uh, First up, consolidated cases Altitude Express versus Zarda and Bostock versus Clayton County. And the issue is whether Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination in employment covers sexual orientation. So, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits employers from failing to hire, firing, or otherwise discriminating in the terms and, and conditions of employment based on an individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So the issue here is, does sex include something more than sex? Does it include sexual orientation? So these cases were relisted more than a dozen times. So many SCOTUS watchers expected one of the justices was probably writing a dissent from denial of cert. But now the court will hear this pair of cases in addition to another one raising a similar issue, which is Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC. And that raises uh, raises the issue of whether sex discrimination covers uh, gender identity uh, either as a, as a protected status or whether it, it falls under sex stereotyping following a 1989 Supreme Court decision called Price-Waterhouse versus Hopkins. So Hans, what do you, you think is going on here?
1: Well, look, this is an issue that's been bubbling up in the federal courts all over the country. So I think the Supreme Court realized finally they have to make a decision on it. Um, the decision should be an easy one. Um, it's very clear in 1964 that when lawmakers passed the Civil Rights Act and they talked about discrimination on the basis of sex, they were not talking about sexual orientation or anything like that. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe not that that should be against the law. That's up to policymakers to decide. And if, if that's the status, Congress needs to amend the law. But you look at the plain text, you look at the legislative history in '64. And clearly, that was not intended by the lawmakers at the time.
0: I, I think that's right, and uh, you know, a lot of the lower courts that have ruled to expand the defi- definition of sex right. have relied on this 1989 Price Waterhouse case, where the Supreme Court ruled that sex discrimination includes gender stereotyping. Um, but what they held was that reliance on sex stereotypes is one way of proving sex discrimination. Right. It didn't. Uh, it didn't create a new protected class. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens with those cases. But I think you're right that this is this is one of those cases where a number of the justices may be reluctant to uh, redefine what's in federal law because Congress is perfectly capable of adding uh, additional protected classes if if it chooses to do so.
1: But but it will be. Politically incorrect, not <laughs> to do so because you know that when the media and others cover it, they they won't they won't cover it in that in that kind of finely nuanced fashion.
0: That's true. But moving on, there were two other grants: Sitco Asphalt Refining versus Frescatti Shipping Company. We'll just briefly mention this one. It's whether, under federal maritime law, a safe birth clause. In a voyage charter contract is a guarantee of a ship's safety or a duty of due diligence. Apparently, the circuits are split on this issue. Uh, And then finally, the court granted certain Barton versus Barr. The issue is whether a lawfully admitted permanent resident who is not seeking admission to the United States can be rendered inadmissible for the purpose of the stop time rule. So generally speaking, a green card holder won't be deported if he has lived in the U.S. continuously for seven years. But under what's known as the stop time rule... This period of continuous residence ends if that uh, green card holder commits an offense that would render him inadmissible. So the court is going to consider whether the stop time provision uh, applies when a green card holder is not seeking to be admitted to the United States. And Adam Unikowski from Jenner and Block represents the challenger here. He made his SCOTUS debut just three years ago, and he's won every single case since then. Uh, so we'll see if his winning streak continues.
1: That, that's quite a record. You know, the one thing about the the maritime case that I think is just kind of historically interesting to mention is that um, Admiralty law used to be really the province of the Justice Department. That was mostly what they did, certainly in the early early part of history of the of the country. Um, and because of that, there's actually a lot, you know, there's a huge legal library at the main justice <laughs> building in Washington, and it has this gigantic section on admiralty law, which these days the court rarely sees.
0: That's true. And uh, the Fifth Circuit has, has quite a, a healthy docket of admiralty cases, I believe. And, and the Fifth Circuit is on one, one side of the split in this case. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, moving on, the court issued two opinions this week. Uh, well, one one merits opinion and one dig. Uh, the opinion is in Lamps Plus Inc. versus Varela. This was a 5-4 opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts with the rest of the uh, conservative bloc voting with him, holding that arbitration agreements must explicitly call for class arbitration in order for that process to be invoked. A court can't infer from the agreement's silence on the matter that the parties agreed to class arbitration. And then finally, the court uh, digged Emulex Corp. And that means dismissed as improvidently granted. And this uh, this order in the case came a week after the, the case was argued at the Supreme Court. And the issue there was uh, looking at the standard of liability under federal securities laws for misleading disclosures about tender offers. So no merits opinion on that riveting subject.
1: Yeah. And, and we should just mention on that arbitration case, that the l- latest decision, Uh, That's just the latest in a long line of cases that have gotten to the court where challengers have basically been trying to take apart the Federal Arbitration Act. And there's been a continual split between the conservative wing of the court and the liberal wing uh, about that law and its application.
0: And so that that – That split continues.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Moving on, uh, this is the final week of oral arguments for the current Supreme Court term. And the biggest case that was argued this week is the challenge to the Trump administration's plan to include a, a citizenship question on the 2020 census. So this question was previously included on just about every census from 1820 until the 1950s. Uh, And the the announcement that the administration would include it on the upcoming census quickly drew legal challenges in New York, California, and Maryland. And the Southern District of New York enjoined the government from adding the question. uh, And the Trump administration uh, asked the Supreme Court to take up the case, leapfrogging the appeals court because the census forms must be finalized by June. Uh, the, The court agreed to take it up. And Hans, you were at the oral argument. So first up, what are the main arguments that the challengers are making here for why why this is a constitutional violation to add the citizenship question back?
1: Well, they're actually making two arguments. One is a constitutional claim, uh, and there was a court out in San Francisco that held that it was a, is a constitutional violation uh, because they, they claim that uh, we won't get an accurate count. And because we won't get an, ac- an accurate count, because supposedly they, they say Hispanics are going to be afraid to answer the census. I mean, that's that's basically their argument. Um, if we don't have an accurate count, then you can't have uh, a, a realistic and accurate reapportionment. And that, of course, is the main purpose in the Constitution for the census every, uh, every 10 years, although the, the Constitution doesn't call it a census. They call it—they uh, direct Congress to conduct an actual enumeration. And the point, of course, is after that, we then determine how many members of the House of Representatives um, each state gets based on their population. Uh, the, the other argument that they have made, and this was, uh, this was uh, in the New York case,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, is that the decision by Wilbur Ross, the secretary of commerce, who uh, said that we are going to reinstate a citizenship question, was arbitrary and capricious – It was not reasonable, and therefore uh, the way he did it and his uh, uh, invalid reasons for doing it violated uh, a a law called the Administrative Procedure Act, which is this law that governs how federal agencies issue new regulations.
0: So you were in the courtroom. Tell me about some of the key exchanges from the oral argument.
1: Well, it was very clear that the liberal justice on the court (laughs) – they were loaded for bear when uh, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, stood up. Um, they barely let him get out his opening statement before uh, Justice Sotomayor started going after him with very fierce questions. Uh, quite frankly, Jumbo uh, seemed like uh, a, a advocate or a lawyer for the challengers <laughs> rather than a, rather than a justice. And they questioned um, the reasons for the. Uh, Government making this decision, um, they clearly bought into uh, the plaintiff's claims that this will somehow cause the response rate to go down uh, to the census. Um, the conservative uh, judges hardly asked any questions of the government.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, when the plaintiffs, uh, the challengers' lawyers, stood up, uh, there were three lawyers there, so they had split a crowded their crowded podium. It was a crowded <laughs> podium. So the Solicitor General of the state of New York uh, argued first. Uh, she was there because uh, the state of New York was one of the main plaintiffs. Uh, she she did a fairly good job, but I, I think there were points where she really didn't have um, a good answer for some of the questions that were being posed. And, and the, the one I would, I would give you that I think really uh, starkly outlines the case is, is one by Justice Alito. Mm-hmm. Because part of what the Census Bureau said to Wilbur Ross was that there are about 22 million people in the United States for which there are no administrative records. In other words, records from other government agencies that could be used to check whether or not they're citizens or not. And the Census Bureau estimated that um, uh, the census would have a 98 percent accuracy rate in getting answers from those 22 million people. The alternative to that, and this is what the challengers say ought to be done because they don't want people to have to answer this question, is for the Census Bureau to basically design and build a computer model that will estimate this. And the Census Bureau said, well, we don't have this model built, (laughs) um, but we we think we can do it and we think it will be more accurate uh, than the 98% figure, but we don't have any idea what the error rate will actually be. And Justice Alito basically outlined that and, and then said to um, uh, General Underwood, who represented New York, so are you saying that the decision of Wilbur Ross to go with what he knew, which was a 98% accuracy rate, if the question is on the census, rather than... An untested, unproven model where they can't even quantify the error rate. You're saying that was an arbitrary and capricious decision, <laughs> and she said yes. <laughs> you know that 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 that's kind of hard to, to take. Um,
0: Might as well go back to the days when you had you know census takers going door to door and writing writing the questions down for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: right. Um, the second lawyer there was uh, Dale Ho. He was there on on behalf of an co- an immigration coalition. And he frankly spent most of his time attacking Wilbur Ross and making all these claims that the secretary had had misled uh, everyone about what he was doing. I, I did not think that's a very productive way of arguing the substantive issues. And I think he he made quite an error when he admitted uh, something that the government has said. The government has said that one of the reasons they need this citizenship data is for proper um, proper enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And he basically admitted that, yes, they do need uh, citizenship data in order to do that. Now, he then tried to say, well, yeah, but this is not the way to do it. But he basically admitted that what the government was claiming was, was correct. Um, the third and last person was a lawyer there on behalf of the House of Representatives
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and Nancy Pelosi. And what uh, I think surprised a lot of people was that uh, – uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was pretty quiet during the arguments, she actually asked him a very tough question. I think maybe, <laughs> maybe it maybe inadvertently, because yeah. <laughs> what she said to him was that, um, you know, constitutionally, uh, Congress has complete control over the census.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if and and they have been, as she said, alerted to this citizenship question for some time, and it has done nothing about it. So she then says. Uh, Congress is silent. Does that mean that we, the court, should step in and decide this issue? <laughs> and once again, the the lawyer for um, the House of Representatives, I, I I think, really didn't have much of a good answer about this. Um, in the in the end, he basically said, "Well, the fact that Congress hasn't acted doesn't mean the court shouldn't step in and do something about it."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because uh, I I don't think he has any way of really explaining the fact that you know if, if Congress wants to stop this. All they have to do is pass legislation and they can do it.
0: So do you think this is going to be – you're pretty confident this is going to be a 5-4 ruling?
1: I believe so. Given the tenor of the questioning from all of the justices, uh, I, I think it's going to be a 5-4 decision. And I, I think this will be another one of these cases that the Trump administration wins, just like, for example, they won in the travel ban case.
0: hmm well, earlier this week, uh, in the lead up to the argument, I read a really interesting article by Mark Sherman, where he went through the ancestry of all of the justices. And you know, the the lead part of the article talks about how Justice Kagan's father was apparently incorrectly marked as a non citizen uh, in the census uh, uh, early on in his life. And I thought that was um, <laughs> a pretty interesting article. Right. Um, but anyway, I'll share that. Uh, I'll share that. Uh, on the Twitter account for any listeners who are interested in reading that. Well, Hans, thank you so much for joining me. Well,
1: sir, thanks for having me.
0: And next up, I recently spoke with 10th Circuit Judge Joel Carson about his connection to the Roswell UFO incident and his advice for young lawyers. Joel Carson is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Carson.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So over the course of your career, you've been a law clerk, general counsel at an energy company, a magistrate judge. You spent time working in private practice, and now you're an appeals court judge. What has been your favorite job?
3: So I don't want to sound like I'm giving a cop-out answer, but (laughs) I've loved all my jobs. You know, being a law clerk, I tell my clerks, is the best job you'll ever have. I loved being a law clerk. And, you know, there's one of the only times in your life you'll ever get to read cases from start to finish and really completely think through things. So I think being a law clerk's a great job. And I really enjoyed private practice, too. I always think that private practice is a place where you can really make a difference. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: A private practice lawyer can, can really do things that a general citizen cannot do so. Private practice was great. Um, I, this job sort of new, so my <laughs> my being a circuit judge is new, but I love it so far.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then being being in the private sector uh, as general counsel was a great job. I, you know, where we sit right now, that's definitely toward the top. Mm-hmm. Being being general counsel, I loved it
0: hmm So if you hadn't gone into the legal profession, what do you think you'd be doing today?
3: I'm not real sure what I would do. Before I became a lawyer, I was really interested in agriculture. So it's possible I might have gone into some kind of agricultural field, not necessarily farming, but ag economics or something like that. And the other possibility is I might have tried to be in the oil business. I grew up in the New Mexico Permian Basin, and so I've always been a student of the oil industry. And so I may have, may have been interested in that, too.
0: So you mentioned clerking, uh, and, and that, that was perhaps the best job you've ever had. And you clerked for Judge Bobby Baldock, who is now a senior judge on the 10th Circuit. So tell me a little bit about Judge Baldock.
3: Oh, Judge Baldock's a great guy. Um, you know, Justice Gorsuch told me that Judge Baldock is the quintessential judge's judge. And I think that's really high praise. But Judge Baldock, I mean, he really uh, tries to hit every case down the middle. And he's, you know, knows his job and he does his job without an agenda. And he's been a great mentor to me. And we were counting up the other day, probably 70 law clerks that he's had over the years. You just couldn't ask for someone better to, to clerk for and to have as a lifelong mentor than, than Judge Baldock. He's just a great guy.
0: That's wonderful. So what's it like returning to the Tenth Circuit now as a judge?
3: It's really interesting. I thought after being a law clerk that I knew everything that the judges did. <laughs> and it turns out there were a lot of things going on that I didn't know. And so I have I have uh, learned uh, that I didn't know everything about the job. So that's been a learning experience. Um, it's been interesting coming back and working with the judges A, that I used to practice before and B, that were uh, judges on the court when I was a law clerk. So I knew them as a law clerk or Mm -hmm. I knew them as a practitioner and now they're a colleague. So that's been interesting. And I've had a great time. Judge Baldock and I are in the same town. So we had a fabulous time working together and doing things together and You know, the the mentorship continues because he's been around it. He knows and he's helped me out a lot.
0: So President Trump nominated you to the 10th Circuit in December 2017, and you were confirmed in May of last year. So now that you've been on the appeals court for about a year, how are you settling in? And what would you say have been the biggest challenges?
3: Well, I think I'm settling in well. So I was confirmed in May and that was right at the end of the May, loss, the May term for the Tenth Circuit. And so over the course of the summer, there really wasn't any circuit work for me <laughs> because of timing.
2: Uh-huh.
3: So I spent the summer sitting by designation as a district court judge. And I did a lot of sentencings and was assigned a few uh, cases that were set for trial. And so that's what I did this summer. And... Since then, I've full speed on the circuit and just really enjoying it. I guess the biggest challenge is is trying to stay current. It's mm-hmm. really easy to get behind if you don't just keep keep your head down working on these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So your chambers are in Roswell, New Mexico. Now the only thing I know about Roswell is that it's known for UFO sightings. And the federal government has said that some of these UFOs are Air Force weather balloons. But have you ever seen any UFOs?
3: I've never seen one (laughs) that I recall. But my only claim to fame as a private practitioner was that I did represent the manager of the UFO museum who took the subject very seriously. So (laughs) uh, I, I am very familiar with the Roswell incident. (laughs)
0: that's great so do you have any theories oh you know i i i guess if
3: if i was having to to stake a claim on the issue my guess is is that something governmental happened they didn't want anyone to know about it all these stories started brewing and by the time they tried to come clean it was too late (laughs) that that's that's my guess but yeah. who knows maybe, maybe it was a UFO
0: <laughs> uh, so speaking of your chambers do you have anything in your chambers to showcase where you're from or your personality
3: oh absolutely so I'm I'm a I'm a country guy I just told you I grew up here in southeast New Mexico and so I have uh, lots of ranching memorabilia in my chambers and photos of my kids and my wife and My kids and my wife are all into ranching and horses, and so I have lots of pictures of them doing those activities. And then I told you about the oil and gas business earlier. I even have a hard hat (laughs) that I received during the tour of an oil and gas drilling rig one time.
0: That's cool. Well, I'm from Kentucky, so I fully approve of your your having horse memorabilia in, in your chambers. Uh,
3: Absolutely. I went to I went to baby judges school in Lexington and had a great time.
0: (laughs) And gearing up for the Kentucky Derby pretty soon. So are you starting any traditions with your law clerks, any special outings or anything like that?
3: Well, we're doing a lot of things. Having been in less than a year, I'm not sure we can brand them as traditions, but we go to lunch every Friday at the livestock auction. So we have a livestock auction close to our office, Mm
2: -hmm. and
3: we all go there. And so I'm having a lot of fun taking people from—I have one clerk who moved up from the Virgin Islands, one from California, one from Indiana, and one from West Virginia. So I'm having a lot of fun taking them to places like livestock auctions for lunch. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I didn't know that that would be something you do uh, over lunch. Sounds like fun. Well,
3: they're they're not really having the auction when we're there, but they have a restaurant in oh, okay. the livestock auction. So,
0: okay. Might I make a yeah. suggestion? You absolutely. Could, you could take your law clerks to look for UFOs.
3: <laughs> we might we might do that sometime because I know the person who owns the alleged UFO crash crash site.
0: Oh wow! Okay, well, yeah. that would be pretty. So cool. if you're
3: and if you're ever out here, I'll take you out there.
0: <gasps> that would be wonderful. Now I need to make a, a special Scotus 101 trip to Roswell.
3: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Well, a, a lot of our listeners are law students and young lawyers. Uh, so, what advice would you have for them, or is there something that you wish you knew when you were first starting out as a lawyer?
3: You know, if I was, if someone was asking me what they need to do with their legal career is. I would say the first thing to do is find a good mentor because nobody knows what they're doing in the law business, no matter what you're doing, when you first come out of school. Mm-hmm. So it's critical to have somebody to help you along the way, somebody who's interested in your career. So my my first piece of advice is to seek out a mentor. My second piece of advice is if you want to be a trial lawyer or a litigator, um, seek out every opportunity to actually get in court. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was general counsel, I was my worst fear was that we were going to have a trial and that our counsel was not going to be someone who tried cases. So... If you're going to be a litigator, I just think it's critical. You've got to find ways to get into court.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. Are there any books that you'd recommend to law students or young lawyers?
3: Oh, absolutely. And some of these are not real sexy books, but they are, <laughs> I think, great books. One of them is called Discovery and Settlement, How to Win Your Case Without Trial. Mm-hmm. And after I just told everybody, try to get in court, but um, this book, like for, for a young lawyer just getting started working on discovery, this book is just an excellent book. One of the partners I worked with in private practice gave me the book, and it's really helpful. The other one for trial lawyers is there's a book called Evidentiary Foundations, and it's by a guy named I'm Winkle Reed is his name. Sort of a funny last name, but <laughs> it's the go-to book. For evidentiary foundations. And if you're in trial and you can't lay a proper foundation, you really risk losing your case because you can't get your evidence in. And if you follow this book, you'll always uh, be able to get your evidence in.
0: Well, those both sound like great practical resources for uh, aspiring litigators and, and, and young lawyers. So one final question right. Something that I ask all the guests who come to SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
3: I would pick. So I knew you asked this question because I'm a fan of your show. So I've thought about this. Well, thank you, you for listening. <laughs> and, I, and I'm and I I'm not going to say John Marshall because I know that's against the rules.
0: <laughs> Too many people but said it.
3: <laughs> but everybody would like to know. Have a conversation with John Marshall, but of course, um, if I could, if I could visit with any justice, uh, living or dead, I'd I'd pick Justice O'Connor, and the reason is, I'd love to talk to her about a Westerner's perspective of going on the Supreme Court, and she was I think she was a little unique in that regard because she's not someone who had a career in D.C.,
2: mm-hmm. but
3: was like from the West before she ended up. On on the Supreme Court. I mean, she was a Westerner who ended up landing on the Supreme Court. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to know, you know, like her experience of coming from Arizona and ending up in D.C.
0: Well, that would be a great conversation.
3: She's also, you probably know this, she's also a grew up ranching.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to reading the the new biography about her by Evan Thomas. Uh, I think it's called Absolutely. first. I haven't read it yet, but I, I bought it. It's on my shelf. Once I finish the the chief about Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, then uh, then first about Sandra Day O'Connor is next on my reading list. All right.
3: Right. You're ahead of me. I've been <laughs> I've been reading. I've been reading cases, haven't been reading that many books recently.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I'm in the you know the the leisurely world of, of think tanks where you know we get paid to think and read.
3: <laughs> right, right. So I, you know, I, I would be remiss. You were asking me about books that I'd tell people they should read. I really like Point Taken, um, Ross Guberman's book. Yeah. So I would I would recommend that one as well.
0: Definitely. All right. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, UFO edition. Judge Carson, are you ready?
3: Uh, As ready as I'll ever be.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, The first question. In an employment discrimination suit brought by a child welfare caseworker who was fired because he made comments about seeing UFOs and being abducted by aliens... Which side do you think the district court ruled for? And I can give you a hint about what the, what the government said their reason for firing him was.
3: Yeah, I'd like to know that first.
0: <laughs> the local government said that these comments could negatively affect the caseworker's credibility as a witness in court, which was something that the caseworkers routinely did.
3: I'm going to say that the, the local government won.
0: That is correct. The court held that the, the caseworker was unable to rebut the legitimate non-discriminatory reason for his termination. And the case, uh, for anyone who wants to to read it, is Brown Eagle versus County of Erie, Pennsylvania, from 2015. All right, you're off to a great start. Second question. One for one. <laughs> a group called Citizens Against UFO Secrecy has sought the release of information about triangular aerial objects under this federal law.
3: Freedom of Information Act.
0: That is correct. And indeed, the group sued the Department of Defense, saying it withheld documents. But in 2001, the Ninth Circuit sided with the government, saying that DOD made adequate attempts to locate relevant documents. All right, two for two. Third question. Which Eleventh Circuit judge used the phrase "the truth is out there" in a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk? And I can give you a hint about the judge if you'd like one.
3: Okay, give me a hint.
0: He's uh, well, he so there's one hint. He's currently the longest-serving appeals court judge in active service.
3: Judge Joe Flatt.
0: That is correct. Uh, so this was in a case dealing with uh, federal courts exercising supplemental jurisdiction. And it's the only reference uh, that I could find doing a Westlaw search, so a very thorough search, uh, that I could find a judge saying the truth is out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, three for three. Fourth question, fourth and final question. Okay. The Supreme Court declined to hear a case in 1998 where sheet metal workers sued the government, arguing that they were poisoned by the open burning of hazardous wastes at this secret government facility
3: area 51
0: that is correct and the government had invoked the state secrets privilege and in, until that point it had never acknowledged the existence of this facility well judge judge carson four out of four i and this may be the first time i've had someone get all of the questions right uh so you did a fantastic job on supreme trivia Well,
3: maybe I, you know, maybe I was getting some mental help from an extraterrestrial. We'll never know.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me.
3: All right. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.
3: Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.